This is The Way Forward. I'm Judy Orlean, President of Quinnipiac University. We're podcasting conversations with provocative trailblazers who are seeking solutions to today's challenges. In this episode, I interview Bill Weldon, the former chair and CEO of Johnson & Johnson, and David Feinberg, who heads Google Health, as we explore the frontiers of healthcare, how artificial intelligence and individualized medicine will advance the health and well-being of broad populations, and my guest's assessment of potential solutions to the coronavirus pandemic. Thanks for joining us on The Way Forward. Well, morning, everyone. Um, delighted that you're here with us on The Way Forward. I'm Judy Olian. I'm president of Quinnipiac University, alongside Bruce Copen, who's dean of the Quinnipiac Netter School of Medicine. And we have two distinguished guests with us. I won't go through their entire backgrounds, but I'll just mention Bill Weldon, former chair and CEO of Johnson & Johnson on the board's several boards, but including CVS, and most recently just stepped down as chairman of the Board of Trustees of Quinnipiac, Morning Bill, and David Feinberg, who is head of Google Health at the moment, previously uh, CEO of Geisinger Health System and the UCLA uh, Hospitals. So morning, David. They're both joining us from the West Coast. Thank you for being with us. And Bruce and I will alternate asking questions. And for the audience, you have a Q&A button. Please feel free to add your questions to the list there, and we'll incorporate them as we go. So I'll just start uh, with each of you, Bill and uh, David. Um, What drew you into the field of medicine? David, why don't you start? So uh, as a little boy, um, I, I, I love kids and I wanted to work with kids. I think I wanted to grow up and be maybe a school teacher, but then I said, I think I'll be a pediatrician. Didn't come from a family of doctors, uh, wasn't sick, um, but loved kind of hanging out with kids. And then in medical school, discovered child psychiatry. And that was the one area that after a two or three month rotation, I felt like I knew less than when I started. Um, and then made the decision that uh, being able to help kids with mental illness and change the trajectory in their life just a little bit could have this huge effect. And uh, then ultimately went into child psychiatry um, and addiction psychiatry, particularly with teens. And it's a lot of fun to be able to get to know families in an intimate way and be able to affect uh, children and adolescents' lives. And from there, you yeah, know- and I- because you were so good into um, healthcare administration. I can attest to that, having known you at UCLA. Bill. Yeah, no, I um, actually, I studied at Quinnipiac. I studied uh, the sciences and was on my way to medical school. Uh, and I had a individual who was gonna put me through medical school and then I was gonna put his daughter through college. And unfortunately he passed away from cancer my senior year and I was married. Um, for two years while I was in school. And, and um, due to that, I, I needed to go get a job. And I went out and had one interview with J&J, started my job, my career there with the intent of going back to school. Actually, it was well presented to me by a good friend who I hired in France, who was a, uh, one of the top um, professors and, and transplant surgeons there. And I said to Guy, I said, why did you join J&J? And he said, he said, Billy, when I'm on the, you know, Working on the table, I'm saving a life. When I work at j and I'm saving thousands of lives. And I guess my career just went there, and I felt uh, very fortunate to be there and never went back to school and just uh, stayed at j and J. I never left j and yeah. Right. So, Bill, uh, Johnson & Johnson is working on a vaccine with CVS, and uh, you're on the board of CVS. And they have been innovative in helping support rapid COVID testing around the country. What do you see as the trajectory for development of a powerful therapeutic or a vaccine, as well as a rapid, rapidly available and low costing test? Yeah, it's interesting. We had a CBS board meeting yesterday and we kind of talked about all of that. I think the, um, if I talk about the testing first, I think we're still learning and, and moving forward with that. I think you know, there's a, a myriad of tests out there, some more accurate than others, and some will give you a faster read back 
Um, I think they're, they're improving them as they go. I think they're about 86% effective now in terms of, of finding whether you do or don't have the virus, but it seems to be very effective on, on determining that you don't have the virus. Um, and I think that, that the tests are coming along quickly. I think more, the more pressing question is access to it. And I know CVS has set up over a thousand stores where you get drive-through testing, but you still have to wait a period of time to get it. Uh, so I think the testing is coming along rapidly. It's just a matter of access to accurate testing. I think the, on the therapeutic side and the vaccine side, um, my feeling is you have, I think there's like 120 companies that are working on vaccines today. And I think most of them are actually rooting for each other because no one company is going to be able to satisfy the, 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 the international or the global needs for vaccines. The big challenge is going to be, one, getting them approved. I think Moderna is one of the leading companies, but they're using what's termed messenger RNA, which is a way that nothing has ever been developed from before. So we still have to wait to see what's going to happen there. I think J&J's vaccine, I, I think the other one that's really the leader is the one out of Oxford that AstraZeneca is developing in, in Europe. And then J&J will probably be next. But I don't, I don't see a vaccine personally um, until early next year or the middle of next year, and especially at the volumes that are going to be necessary, because manufacturing is going to be the limiting factor. So I think they're going to go first to healthcare workers and get, them, get it out that way. But I think that um, everybody would like to see vaccines develop rapidly, and I think that the governmental agencies are working with them to try and do it, but you still have a lot of challenges. One of the biggest challenges, I have a friend who's working with one of the top um, CMOs, clin the clinical testing um, groups here in the United States, um, and there just aren't enough patients right now to be able to go out and test it with enough patients to be able to, to find both safety and efficacy. So I think that the challenge is going to be, A, there's, there's the vaccines that are being developed by different ways, and then B, getting enough patients to be able to satisfy um, the, the, the safety and efficacy issues, and then C, the, the um, manufacturability of the products to be able to move them forward. So my, my best guess is we might have something that looks really promising towards the end of this year. I'm not sure, depending upon the regulatory bodies, how quickly we'll get them approved, and they'll probably get a, a special approval to use, but I think it'll be into the, the beginning to the middle of next year before we actually have that. On the therapeutic side, it's a whole other issue. I think that we're learning more about, unfortunately, we're learning more about the virus every day and the response to it. But I think the, um, the Gilead product uh, seems to be effective in shortening the duration of the problem for patients. There's now the steroid that's out that's looking to be effective. I'm working at Johns Hopkins on a, another one that's going to be a therapeutic treatment. So I think we will have some treatments for patients. And hopefully we can, as always, get them on the products earlier rather than later to be able to move them forward. But I think we'll have a therapeutic we, well, we have a couple therapeutic agents right now. I think the, the vaccines will be towards the end of this year more prominently for use for the normal public uh, towards the early to middle of next year. Um, and I'm sorry I was a long-winded answer, but that kind of covers what, uh, what I think is going on out there. Thank you. David, do you have anything to add from Google's perspective on vaccine or therapeutic development? Well, I would just echo what Bill was saying. Um, it's going to take um, a lot of really thoughtful clinical trials. Uh, we have through our Verily sister company, a project called Baseline, where uh, all the folks that are getting testing are enrolling in the trial. Um, I think from a U.S. standpoint, it probably would be helpful to think of some other parts of the country where the, I'm sorry, other parts of the world where the virus is just getting to because you have a better opportunity to then enroll people. Um, unfortunately, we may be creating that same situation here where we see our cases going up and we, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, we may have enough people to start doing our trials here. So uh, the patient enrollment's gonna be difficult. Um, and then from a Google standpoint, um, we're really, really focused on authoritative information. And so we wanna make sure that um, misinformation, which we battle on anti-vaccine, doesn't get hold here so that people get the right information 
can make the right decision with their healthcare provider about whether a vaccine is appropriate for them or their family or their loved ones. So, so part of the race to uh, not just develop the vaccine, but actually logistically supply the vaccine to the billions of people on the planet almost seems to be a race um, of competition across countries. We're seeing um, the European Union engage in contracts up front with some companies like J&J, um, I, I think uh, like AstraZeneca, where they're saying, if a drug is developed, we're giving you hundreds of millions of dollars contracts in advance. Same here in the United States, Sanofi, some startups. So is there going to be a coordinated effort or is it a race to the finish line where countries compete with each other? Well, it's, it's not really a race to the finish, Judy, because as I said, I think that everybody wants to get there as quickly as possible. But as I said, I think everybody's rooting for each other because it, there's a great need and the need will far exceed what any one company can supply. I do think, you know, the, the governments, the U.S. has given literally billions of dollars. They gave almost a half a billion to J&J &J to build manufacturing facilities. Um, and J&J &J is committed to, to doing that, but it's long before the drug has been proven to be safe and effective. So many of the companies, I know AstraZeneca is, J&J uh, is, and others are actually investing heavily in manufacturing facilities before the drug is even proven to be safe and effective. So then when it does come, they'll be able to, you know, to deliver um, on the promise. But um, I think they're way ahead of it right now. And actually the governments have given lots of money out prior to approval of a product to make sure when it does come that it will be, you know, uh, that they'll be able to supply. I'm sorry, David. No, I agree. Um, so, so let me um, just flash on the screen um, a, a, just a quick snapshot that I'm sure many of you have seen. This, this is just one way, and this is a snapshot from last week, I think, of the very different patterns between the US and let's say Europe, some of the countries that have like France and Italy and Spain that had major outbreaks. The trajectory is very different between uh, the two continents. What do you think are the main reasons that explain that? Um, maybe start with uh, David and then Bill. Sure. Um, well, a couple of things is Italy got it earlier, so uh, that they really um, were overwhelmed and locked down before us. So the time sequencing here is important, but you kind of see that in the graph. Um, the, the other thing is that in the U.S., I think you see very, very different pictures based on particular regions. And that spike is likely because of increased cases in a, in, in a few states. Um, we're a big country from a geographic standpoint, but probably in the same space as Germany, France, Italy, and Spain. Um, we, we, with Apple, um, created a, um, a tool that allows contact tracing. We call it exposure notification. And I can't remember the 11 countries that have done it, but I do think it is Germany, Italy, uh, I think France. Um, and so what that does is when, uh, let's pretend that uh, I was exposed and, or I'm positive. Well, I could come home and tell my family and maybe I uh, could tell other people that I knew that I was in contact with. But if I was on a bus, it's very hard for me to tell the other people on the bus, particularly the ones that sat next to me, that they've now been exposed. So in a very privacy first way, we used um, the technology to allow the phones in a blue. So we've seen that um, uh, being taken up in other countries. In the US now, some states are starting to get interested in that. I think that's a very, very small piece of the puzzle, but is part, I think, of the explanation um, in a total toolbox to make sure people understand social distancing, that people understand how well communities are, um, um, avoiding close contact, mask wearing, et cetera. So we lost you for a moment, but I think you talked about the crit criticality of tracing. Uh, yes. Yeah. Bill, what, what's your take on this? Yeah, I'm not sure I have much to add to, to what David had to say. I think you're, you're right, there are hot spots. I, I also have to say I'm, I'm very skeptical about any of the data we're getting. I think the media, you know, I'm not a fan of what the media rep is representing, but more importantly, 
in the tracing because of the inability to test a lot of areas and whatnot. I, I just, I think we're still learning a lot about the virus and I think there's probably a lot of people that are asymptomatic that we don't even know about country by country, but I think what David said is really, you know, the, the key issues. I'll ask David now, um, you, you know, Google has these incredibly uh, powerful digital platforms, tracing and, and, um, and clustering capabilities. You get, I think, over a billion health questions a day at Google. How has your digital capability and information access, um, how is it helping us address this global health crisis? What are some of the levers you're able to use to exploit that digital platform and information access? Well, thanks, Judy. Um, the, when this broke, um, for the first time ever, Google created an SOS page that had something to do with a medical condition. Um, we've done them previously for natural disasters, but this is the first time we did a medical SOS page. And what that means is if you typed in google.com slash COVID or anything around coronavirus, you got to a page that was completely curated by authoritative information, um, local public health, uh, national, WHO, CDC. Uh, there were no ads. And we tried to make it very, very easy for people to get that authoritative information. Um, so that's the first time that Google's done that for a medical problem and proud of my team for working on that. Um, what we started to see- Can I ask in, how many hits a day you get on that? We get a lot, <laughs> we get a lot. Um, the, uh, what we saw on those hits, um, well, if you actually wanna take a look at the hits, you can go to Google, uh, trends.google.com and you can see relatively, so you could put in Super Bowl or Beyonce or whatever you want and then put in a term like COVID and you could see the difference between those types of things and you really get the, 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 the magnitude of what people were looking for. What we saw over time was it went from information about the disorder to a lot of mental health issues. We saw a lot of searches for anxiety and depression. So we launched um, it's now probably been about a month and a half ago, uh, uh, an anxiety screener online. So if you were to Google in anxiety or anxiety disorder, you could take a self-assessment um, of where you are on a spectrum of anxiety disorders. And previously I'd done that for depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. And you know, what we saw and the data would tell us um, that those suffering from depression and anxiety, diseases of despair like suicide, substance abuse, um, alcoholism really increase in times like this. When the economy gets bad, when the social isolation leads to social, when social distancing leads to social isolation, when you're stressed because of, of, of work and food and toilet paper and being at home uh, and not being with loved ones, on average, and this is before COVID, people would spend seven years before they would share a mental health disorder with a loved one or a family. So we felt like if we could get people to screen themselves and then through virtual care, tee up treatment, we could really close that gap. So to me, that's an example of how we use the platform to see what was going on and really to help our users, in this case, get treatment. And we're talking about you know a third of Americans talking about suffering from depression or anxiety during this time. Um, so that's an example of what we did. We also had a COVID screener um, that we put up in partnership with the White House and the CDC and had done similar things around the world. Um, we also did a com community mobility reports. So this is in the US, it's on a county level, but every county, and this was because public health was asking us this. As this. Um, counties could then look and see, are people staying home? Are people going to the park? Are people going to the supermarket? And use that information to make policies. And we see daily that people are actually around the world in multiple countries using our ability to aggregate in an anonymized way um, people's searches or movements, et cetera. So those are things that I think I'm really proud that we were able to do um, to help people kind of get through what's really been an amazingly difficult time for the world. You know, I'm going to pick up on what you just said and weave in a question from uh, a member of the audience, Rahul, who's suggesting or asking, do you see a shift from 
provider-based healthcare providers to platform-based providers. And of course, one key example is telemedicine. Um, and, and, and you alluded to that, David. Yeah, so I don't think telemedicine moved on the curve with this. I think it moved to a whole different curve. Um, so we saw uptake on telemedicine uh, and virtual care, um, just phenomenal numbers. So what we tried to do through maps and other tools that we have is to make it really easy for people to access that care. So if you were now to Google even sore throat or sprained ankle or do I have COVID, we bring up virtual care options, both with your local provider and some, some of the big national providers so that people can easily kind of access this care uh, along with instructions like don't go without calling in advance if that's what the urgent care wanted because they may be using a different waiting room for the COVID patients. So really make it easy as people try to get information for healthcare and then we want to make it easy for them to get into action to that next step. And that next step often is a visit. And uh, it was very clear that a lot of people were asking for these virtual visits or telehealth. Um, and we added those types of features and also made it easy for a lot of the smaller practices around the country to use our products to create HIPAA or privacy secure ways to set up telemedicine for their offices. Judy, I might, can I jump in for a second? Because we, we reviewed that with CVS yesterday. And so far in the first six months of this year, we've had 20 times the amount of use of telemedicine through the many clinics and other areas uh, than we had all of last year. And it's just absolutely exploding. And the technology that allows you, as, as David was saying, the technology not only to um, talk about your symptoms, but actually to be able to work within a clinic for, to, to work with doctors to be able to look for otitis media, for example, to look into your ear, to look into your throat. There's a lot of work coming out of Israel right now where they've done tremendous amount of work with um, distant doctors actually using telemedicine to be able to diagnose and treat patients. And, you know, I think, I think one of the things you were going to talk about later on, but I think is really going to change in medicine is going to be the ability to um, really get treatment of many symptoms, diagnostics, treatments, and also deliveries from pharmacies where the patient may never even have to leave the house to be able to get diagnosed, treated, and, and get their medications to be able to treat themselves. So I think that um, there's going to be a huge change in the future of medicine uh, and the way it's handled. So um, uh, I guess I'll, I'll ask this to David. Uh, one of the things that we've learned from the COVID pandemic uh, is that it's revealed large disparities uh, that exist in minorities' access to healthcare in our country. Uh, how can companies like Google and J&J &J offer greater access to products, data, or technology to help close those gaps? I'll start with you, David. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. So as somebody who's- David, if I can interrupt, what you both just talked about could actually exacerbate the divide in access to healthcare if there is a digital divide um, uh, due to poverty. Sorry. Thanks. So I think it's a really, really important issue. And for those of us who spent our career in healthcare, this isn't new. The health inequities among uh, people of color and low socioeconomic are such that you can live a few miles apart. You could go to the same doctors in the same hospitals in your city as your neighbor that lives a couple miles apart and have life expectancy differences of 20 to 25 years. And that's driven by um, uh, not bad doctoring and bad hospitals and bad nurses or good healthcare. It's driven by the other stuff, access to food, safe neighborhoods, transportation, chronic stress, um, really the diseases of despair that definitely uh, affect those communities at a higher rate. It's racism is a healthcare issue. Um, we, we need to do a lot in that area. And I think we've been very careful to make sure that as we develop tools around artificial intelligence, that we're not biased in those data sets. So we're really explicit about, are we getting the right people? And we have a potentially a dermatology product. Have we used it on different skin colors? The, um, as we've looked at, to your point, Judy, about access to care, we wanna make 
Google's mission is to make uh, information universally accessible and useful to everyone. And we say everyone, that's really code word for everyone, everybody. So we really check as our tools come out, do they decrease this equity in healthcare that's particularly affects the poor, needy, and uh, oftentimes is racist. So examples could be, um, we have tools that can improve mammography. We have a tool that can look in the backs of people's eyes and diagnose diabetic retinopathy uh, actually as well, and in some cases better than an eye specialist. We've now launched that tool in India and Thailand where there aren't ophthalmologists at the same percentage that you would see here in the US. So people are getting screened that likely would have never been screened and had gone blind. So we're very, very focused on building our tools and making sure that uh, we combat the racial um, inequities that are built into healthcare. That being said, we have so much more work to continue to do. We have a good partnership with Morehouse College uh, and continue to look at um, the effects. In COVID, we've seen in some cases two to three times increased death rate among Black Americans uh, and others of color. So we have our work cut out, but that's not new in healthcare. This problem has existed pre-COVID. Uh, maybe the silver lining here is it's been brought to light and the world or our country is now attending to it um, so that we can really think about every policy that we do uh, and how we can combat the racism that's already built into healthcare. Yeah, yeah Judy, uh, yeah, you know, Barbara, my wife and myself, Barbara and I have been very involved in the whole healthcare area in the underprivileged areas in, in Florida, for example, and we're setting up clinics and working with them. And to echo what David said, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of issues there. One of the things you if you take it beyond just the diagnosis, and J and J was very involved in, as you said, in diabetes, hypertension, obesity, uh, and the comorbidities associated with those from um, uh, especially the, well the Black, Hispanic, and Native American population, where the, the incidents are much higher. Part of the problem is you can have all the diagnostics in the world, but if the patients don't go and follow up on treatment, that's where the, prob the problem is. So access to healthcare, even if it's not, you know, the affordability is one issue, but even if you make it affordable, patients, and you talked about transportation, David, transportation is a big issue. We're finding that you need vans to go around or you need to set clinics up in certain areas, but you can get to the diagnosis and J&J and &J was very involved with the black community looking at, you know, diabetes, hypertension, and these things. But once the patient was diagnosed, they didn't follow up with the physician. Or even if they did follow up and get a prescription, they didn't get the prescriptions filled. So I think we have to look at, at the, the diagnostic side of it. But then we have to find ways to make sure that people are getting into the treatment phase and, and following through with the treatment that's needed. The other side of some of the, you know, there's so many social issues associated with so much of this that, um, you know, many of these people are day workers and they have to go to work to get paid. So they're not going to go worry about coronavirus or a lot of other things like that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's multifactorial, the issues that we're dealing with, but, you know, with, with Google and with J&J &J and with other people that are really involved, I think that we can start to bend the curve a little bit here but it's going to take a huge effort and a huge educational process. It's going to really be able to um, address the whole racism, if you want to call it that, in, in, uh, in healthcare. I'll just follow up. And, and I, I think you, you were alluding to just the ability to afford all the access to prescriptions, to transportation, to be able to take off work. So there's a poverty issue that's driving um, the inability to comply. There's a question here about um, contract tracing and public compliance. We have seen <coughs> data that show that even when you get calls in um, Florida or we have seen it in Connecticut, people are not forthcoming in providing data around tracing. To what extent is that an impediment to, um, uh, to the uh, containment of, of, of uh, COVID, and is there a shame factor or an embarrassment factor in admitting that one has COVID? How do we overcome that? And this is really coming from one of our um, audience members. David, you may be better from Google's perspective to answer that. 
Sure. I think it's about trust and I think it's about understanding. I mean, it's pretty amazing that America knows things like now bend the curve and social distancing, right? These public health things. I think public health in America has been historically underfunded. Um, and yet you see how important it is. I was reading a paper, I think it was from about 100 years ago, exactly, about the Spanish flu uh, pandemic. And the, the, the advice in there was the same advice we're giving now, and it's almost like we haven't learned. So we, we are in this world together. Um, coronavirus does not know the boundaries of politics or of geography. Um, and we need to, as a world, or in this case, as our country, really understand that me wearing a mask, particularly if I think I'm sick or if I'm an asymptomatic carrier, doesn't help me, but certainly helps my neighbors. So um, I, I just think those types of messages are really important um, that America understands we're in this one together. And, and if we don't get this right, it has so many consequences beyond the medical sequelae of people dying the morbidities associated with it, the mental health issues, there's all the economic issues. And so these two go together. Uh, and I think it's really around people understanding public health. And I think we've made a big step forward, unfortunately, with this event where people now start to understand why this is important. I don't think people understand yet the long-term effects that are going to come. I think we're just starting to realize that the virus isn't really that well defined yet. And that um, there, are, there are many, many, let's say longer term effects that they're worried about that could be popping up with these people that have been exposed to it. So I think that's, you know, that's gonna be a big issue. Um, Bruce, you wanna continue? Yeah, um, you know, artificial intelligence is, uh, can be very powerful. And I was wondering if you could describe the ways that uh, AI is transforming medicine and healthcare. Both of you are involved in various trans transformational initiatives that are uh, doing just that. So, Bill, do you want to take that one first? Sure. Um, you know, I think, I think AI, <clears throat> machine learning, artificial intelligence, whatever term you want to put on it, is going to be critical to the future. And I think with the technology that Google and others have, it allows, it allows the ability to um, get deeper and deeper into the diagnostic phase and the treatment and the outcomes phase to look at things that um, heretofore may not have been able to be visualized. So for example, the company HeartFlow that I work with, the more information we get about cardiovascular disease, the more we feed, I call it feed the beast, which is the computer that's analyzing this, and you get technology that's able to get to things that we had never been able to get to before to understand, you know, what is going to be the, this, the, if you look at it, the symptomatology that you have, and then the treatment that's going to be most effective, and, and also to be able to predict uh, patients that are going to need certain um, technologies or treatments uh, and, and improve outcomes dramatically. So I, I think that AI is um, going to continue to advance medicine in ways that it's never been advanced before. And you can take that down to, and Bruce, you're more familiar with this than I am, but you know, when I was at J&J, &J, you know, the advances that were being made in the um, identification of molecules, peptides, proteins, they're able to treat diseases and be able to factor out tons and tons of them. And we had a group that, uh, actually George and Barbara Bush put together to look at the treatment of, of cancer patients and be able to, to really factor out what are kind of dry holes. Let's not go down this area. Let's go over to these areas and look at them. And I think that the, the, the diagnostics are going to play such an important role. And you take that and combine it with the technology that's going to be able to develop treatments for these diseases. I think that AI is just going to explode the um, treatment of you know, various diseases that have never been treated before. The other one that I think is so prevalent is the whole metabolic disease area, where we now have, you talk about wearables, you talk about all of these things we're looking at. Somebody had me review something the other day where they actually had a implant they could put in their tooth that through saliva could manage the, um, look at the, uh, the A1C and the, 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 the things for treatment of, of diabetes and be able to, to measure what was going on and to help facilitate 
the physician who would get a feedback from this to be able to, to work with the patients on treating diabetes. So I, I think that, you know, the, the, we're only limited by our imagination. And I think that's the, the critical thing is if we can get into this and really follow through with it, we'll be able to treat, you know, so many different diseases. And I think, you know, it's just, we're, we're un, unlimited the potential that it has. Hey, Bruce, let me give an example that adds to what Bill said. Because um, I completely agree. So we have a team in London that works with the hospitals there. And we developed an app that allows the rapid, rapid response team in that hospital, the nurses and docs, to get notified. Um, their job is if a patient's in the hospital and is getting sick, to go see that patient. And so what we picked was this measure of kidney function called creatinine. And if the patient's creatinine went up, this rapid response team on a mobile platform got notified and got to go see the patient. Just creatinine. And the time from kidney, the time from diagnosis went from four hours to 14 minutes. There was a 17% reduction in the cost of care and 30% less patients had cardiac arrest. So it was a win. And then what we did was say, instead of looking just at creatinine, let's look at 600,000 variables per patient. And we did this in um, a partnership with the VA and we looked at 70,000 patients and said to the computer, instead of just looking at creatinine, look at everything in real time on these patients and tell us when you think somebody is gonna go into acute kidney injury. The same thing as that creatinine going up. It went from four hours to 14 minutes with creatinine with artificial intelligence um, and our machine learning, it went to negative two days. So 48 hours before a patient had any clinical deterioration, anything that I would notice as a doctor, there was no bump in creatinine, there was nothing that we would know to respond to, the computer was able to predict with 90% accuracy who would go on to dialysis. So you imagine that you're gonna be told now as a doctor, this person potentially in your waiting room that looks really healthy and fine is gonna be deathly ill in 48 hours. We don't even know what to do with that information, right? We, I think, have come upon anticipatory medicine where the computers are gonna warn us that something's gonna happen that's bad with unbelievable accuracy. So we need to work with health systems and doctors to now figure out what would you do? Well, maybe you would stop some medicines that potentially have toxicity. You might wanna give fluids, but I, we don't even know what to do when you get that information. We have a team working on computer vision and have shown that we can have less false positives and false negatives on mammography compared to radiologists. Well, that's great because there's a lot of women who are told um, you need a lump out when they really don't. And there's a lot of women who are told your mammography is fine and it's not. But as we put these tools in, the other thing that we've learned is we've got to build them in the workflow and we've got to include the healthcare provider because they then need to go have a discussion with the patient. So we see this as a tool that can really increase and make clinicians superheroes. And when you think about that, these kinds of tools, a derm tool that can diagnose dermatologic disorders at the same level as a dermatologist is very helpful in rural America where they only have a nurse practitioner, right? We've now up-leveled that person to act like a specialist. Um, so we, I just wanna echo what Bill has been saying on this one. Um, I'm positive that this technology can save lives. The key, uh, I think the two keys are we gotta build it in the workflow people have to trust us. If we lose the trust, I think this technology stays on the shelf and we really missed our opportunity. So we have to be clear about what we're doing, how it works. Are, there, are we making sure we're testing it on the right population so that we're not uh, disadvantaging certain people? Um, and hey, if it's my wife or daughter, as far as that mammography study, there were things the computer missed and there were things the doc missed. What I actually want are both. I want that doctor using these tools when they're caring for my family. You know, and if I can just add one thing to that, because I couldn't agree more with what, what was just said. The, the critical thing here also is to align the incentives for the physician. Because today in the United States, you know, some of the technology is actually, you know, and I think you talked about radiologists a minute ago. 
some of the radiologists are losing their, 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 let's call it income because of some of the technology that's superseding that. And we have to find a way to make sure that we are involving everybody that needs to be involved in the treatment and also that they are compensated accordingly based upon the skill sets that they need to do this and to help educate as, as these new technologies come into play. Uh, we saw it when we went into minimally invasive surgery that uh, a lot of surgeons didn't have the dexterity to do it, but there was a huge movement that way. And we really needed to make sure that the, the compensation was aligned with things because the physician can get in the way and that's something that we don't want to have happen as we move forward. You know, um, I'm just going to observe a couple of things. I saw a paper a few days ago that talked about anticipatory medicine around COVID, what, what David had mentioned, being able to predict two weeks in advance where the COVID outbreaks are going to happen using things like anonymous mobility data from smartphones, doctor searches on a physician platform called up to date readings from a smart thermometer that uploads automatically and it integrated those data streams and could predict where the COVID cases are going to happen two weeks before they happen and in fact they're predicting an outbreak in uh, New Hampshire and Nevada based on those data um, and um, to your, to your point, David, I'll just mention a statistic because you're so concerned about the trust that consumers have in technology. A survey of consumers said that only 38% believe health tech has the proper security measures to protect sensitive data. So we have to get over that in order to have all of the richness of the uploading of, of information to uh, machine learning apps so that we can fully exploit the power of those data. Now, I, I don't want to run out of time and we could go on for a long time. C could I just ask a question about interoperability? Um, because we have all of these providers, we have hospitals, we have doctors, we have pharmacists, we have insurers, both of you are involved in different parts of the supply chain. And yet, as a consumer, when I go, anywhere I have to repeat my information every time and it's very hard for the various providers to see me across these data sets. So how, how do we have a greater interoperability so that every person can be healthier and also that we can provide lower cost health care? Um, Bill, do you want to start with that? Yeah, I, I think we need to, to really get to electronic medical records. And, and, that, and Mike Levitt, when he was head of, uh, of uh, hospital... Um, HHS, Health and Human Services. Yeah, exactly. When, when Mike was in charge of that, he basically said, he drew the analogy of the railroads years and years ago when they, had, they didn't have a standardized format for the, how far the rails needed to be apart. And the only way they could get the railroads working was to come with a standardized form, format that could be able to do that. I think we need to have a standardized format for electronic medical records. And though people are very resistant to this, I think either the government or somebody has to, to regulate that so that you can, wherever you go, you have a card. And when I lived in the UK, when I lived in London, we actually, we're investing with the UK government and carrying kind of a credit card around that basically said, no matter where you are, you can use this credit card in the UK and it will bring up all your medical records so people will know exactly what was going on. I can tell you years ago at J&J, &J, we had a product that was out there that actually had some drug interactions. And we, we had, and the product was a huge product, but we found that after looking at, um, Many, many issues that um, patients would get a, a prescription in the Northeast, and in the winters they would go to Florida. And the, and the Florida doctor didn't know what the product, didn't, didn't really know the history for the, for the patient, and they would put them on a pay, and another drug that would cause a cardiac event and could actually cause fatality. But they didn't know that the patient had been on, was on this longer term product, and then they were put on that one. So I think electronic medical records are gonna give you the ability to, to go any place, anywhere, and know all of the issues that you have 
and everything that's going to going to move it forward. So I think that the first step is to get some type of standardized form that whether you're in you know in, in Lake Oswego, Oregon, or or LA or Connecticut, that you're going to be able to give a give when you go into a, an urgent care, a, a um, mini clinic or whatnot give a card to somebody, they can put it on and they can see all the products you're on, all the issues you have and everything else so that they will be able to treat you appropriately. And I think until we get to that standardized format, we're going to have a lot of problems. We're gonna to continue to have problems. And I think Google can be a huge leader in this area to be able to help standardize some of this stuff and get us to a, a, a electronic medical record. So I think that's gonna be a large part of the solution. Yeah, so it's exactly what we're working on. Um, the uh, electronic health record companies have done an amazing job. They get beat up a lot because they've actually digitized the records. So now they're digital. They don't have great user interface. They're really uh, built, I think, ideally for billing um, and they don't communicate well with each other. But having, and I think the current administration in Washington has done an amazing job pushing interoperability and uh, has now come out with what those standards need to be. And we're starting to see that uptake. Um, we want to be a player in that, and we think it's really important to make sure that you don't have to have a colonoscopy twice because the doctor can't find the first one. So in our work with Ascension, what we're really doing to start with is even at one hospital, they're using multiple uh, types of electronic health records. We want to build on top of that a typical Google search bar so that that doctor can search all of your records or that nurse and find it, even if it was faxed in, even if it came from a lab system that's not necessarily connected to one of the big electronic health records uh, systems. But the electronic health records got this digitized. Now it's our job to actually make this useful and be able to make it uh, interoperable that you can go back and forth. And the, the, the other key piece here is we have to have a frame shift in mind. This record belongs to you, Judy. This is your record, but we've always treated it like it belongs to the hospital and the doctor. And once consumers get it, and consumers then have an ability to get value from it. Hey, you shouldn't be put on this medicine because you have this genetic profile. Hey, only one in 100,000 times would a doctor ever prescribe this for somebody in a, in a situation like you. Are you comfortable taking it? Those kinds of things that tell you about with consent, who in your family, you know, you want to be able to say, hey, it's time to remind, you know, your elderly parent or your kid about an immunization. We have to add value to it because simply collecting the information on your phone isn't going to really drive um, the type of action um, sadly, we're getting towards the end of our time here. Maybe Bruce, you want to ask the last question? It's, it's a little broad, so, uh, but how do you think health, healthcare delivery will change post-COVID? We've touched well, I'll, on I'll, I'll say there's, a couple there's, aspects of that. You know, I think we kind of talked a little bit about it earlier, and I think telemedicine is going to start playing a bigger and bigger role. And I think technology is going to enable um, the changes in, in medicine to be able to to move forward, you know, there. I think all the things we've been talking about, Bruce, to me are the things that will will enable it. I think telemedicine is going to be something that's going to be very important. I think the ability to use machine learning and 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 AI to be able to get better diagnostics and yield better treatments. I think all of these things are going to continue to evolve and be able to give, you know, and I look at it as better outcomes. I think that's that's the critical thing. It's going to be better outcomes. And I think you can see it in robotic surgery. You can see it in all kinds of different things that are actually creating better outcomes and, and better ways to move the patients forward. So I think it's all the things we've been talking about that um, are going to contribute to it. And I think as more and more like Google are going to be able to, let's say, amalgamate and bring together data and information and, and take the data and put it into usable information for physicians and healthcare providers. I think it's going to really, you know, change the whole face of medicine. Do you think a, a company like J&J will want to repatriate the supply chain, bring it back close to the U.S.? Yeah, you know, Judy, I, I was on a panel the other day talking about, you know, obviously this has brought a lot of attention to China and India and whatnot. And I think that, um, you know, my comment to, at, at that panel was the really, you know, I'm going to say companies that, that understand the issues 
have multiple sources. It's not just one. So, you know, and, and part of the supply chain people have to help their boards and, and their, their um, admitted their, let's call it their senior management understand that there may be a cost involved in doing this, but you need to make sure that you're not just dependent for healthcare, especially on one country or one facility or one area. You have to have multiple facilities and it may not be that you have them you have them registered to be able to do backup manufacturing if necessary, um, because it's going to take you a long time to get it approved by the FDA or any of the other regulatory bodies. But you need to have backups. You can't just have your total supply dependent upon one facility. And we've seen that in, in the area of oncology, where there have been products that have been very important, where um, actually companies have outsourced the manufacturing and then the, manu the companies that are doing the manufacturing have said, we're going to get out of the business and then the cancer patient can't get access to their product. So it's not just being in China or being in India. It's making sure that you have backup supply sources that you can turn on. You don't have to have them actively involved, but you have to have them registered so you can turn them on if necessary. So I think good companies are going to become less dependent upon one source and, and actually develop backup supply. David, question about changes post-COVID in healthcare. Well, I would just, I don't want to repeat what Bill said, so let me add two that I think are important. I think um, post-COVID, people now understand how important public health is. And I think that that's a real, real positive. Um, and I think post-COVID, um, the health inequities and racism in healthcare will get the attention that it deserves. And we have a chance of uh, improving and closing the gap um, that people get as far as care. Well, um, we could go on for a long time. Thank you so, so very much, David and Bill, for getting up early on the West Coast and, and joining us and, and sharing the wide wealth of experience and wisdom that you have in the field. And Bruce, thank you for being our partner here in, in joining us for the panel. And we look forward to our next Way Forwards. And um, thanks for everyone who sent in questions and joined us. Have a great day. And thank you. Thanks Bye -bye. very much. Bye now. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Bill Weldon and David Feinberg about cutting edge advances in healthcare. The Way Forward event series is directed by Carla Natale and the podcast is produced by QU student Brian Murphy. To learn more about Quinnipiac's podcast studio and the stories we're telling, visit qu.edu slash podcast and check us out on Instagram and Twitter at QU Podcasts. In our next episode, I interview Michael Zavodsky, Chief Business Officer for the Detroit Pistons, and Peter Guber, veteran Hollywood producer and Oscar winner and co-owner of several professional sports teams, including the Golden State Warriors and the Dodgers. We discuss the future of sports and esports during and after the coronavirus and whether fans will be able to enjoy sports as a digital experience into the future. Join us on The Way Forward.